land of hope and glory, governed by groups that have never signed a contract they didn't think they could break with impunity. Superpower. Colonial powerhouse. When did you let it go? Hello, I'm Brett Dillon, and this is The Movie Chronicles. This episode, we step into the 1940s with an England beginning in the delusion it is still a great power. We see all this through the eyes of Just William, 1940. Director and script, Graham Cutts. Script, Doreen Montgomery and J. Ireland Wood. Director of photography, William J. Harvey. Editor, Edward B. Jarvis. Actors, Richard Lupino, Fred Emney, Basil Radford, Amy Vaness, Iris Huey, Ruddy McDowell, Peter Miles, David Tree, and Elliot Makeham. William Brown is a close cousin of Baby Dumpling in the Blondie series. A little older, but none the wiser. A boy who wants to be helpful, but whose plans and schemes backfire on the adults. I also note the effect of wartime rationing on this production. William and his pals stay in school uniform, even though the majority of the film is set during the holidays. We begin at breakfast time in the Brown household and with a very efficient introduction of the main characters. In the kitchen, Cook and the maid are discussing the peculiarities of the Brown family, setting them up before we even see them. The maid goes from room to room to rouse them all, ending with William, who must brush, polish and scrub up for the last day of school. The movie tries to establish them as a normal family, but with a maid and a cook, they are clearly toffs. Around the breakfast table, we learn about Mater's new project to get Peter, the family's Peter, elected to the local council. The children rally around their disinterest. Robert, the eldest, Ethel, the middle, and William, who at least sees the mischief he can create pasting his father's campaign flyers over everything that doesn't move. At school, William and his pals decide their holiday activity shall be to catch spies. Mr. Brown, meantime, meets with a businessman with some insider knowledge on some copper shares he is willing to sell. After cleaning the moths from his wallet, Mr. Brown splurges on fifty pounds worth of shares. The businessman was hoping for five hundred. Mr. Brown is, however, a river of information about people who might buy into the scam. Uh, a scheme. I meant to say scheme. William gets sight of this businessman and thinks he looks like Dynamite Dan in the comic book. Therefore, he must be a spy. William is close. The businessman is the con artist. William calls his gang together and names them the Nasties. They even have an official salute. It is pointed out to William that the Nazis have a similar salute. He glibly points out that the salute means different things in different languages. The adventure comes to an end when William is ordered to take his baby sister for a stroll. He loses her when he goes to buy lollies at a shop, and in the final gag sequence, all the babies in a baby show are mixed up. William does get his sister back and leaves the adults to sort out the mess he's made. Ethel, all this while, has found a new boyfriend in Master Bot. Pater encourages this as he wants the wealthy Mr. Bot to endorse him in the coming election. 
William, being short of cash and knowing Mrs. Bott is wealthy, decides to do some unauthorized weeding of her garden, on spec, as it were. While doing this, the conmen strike and burgle the house. In order to avoid complications with uh, the law, they entrust William, a likely lad, with their loot. William almost immediately mixes it up with Ethel's present for Master Bot. The rest of the film tries to untangle this muddle. The best gags are the Hitler Guy Fawkes guy and the reveal that Mrs. Bot is a cockney with upper-class pretensions. The film preserves the episodic humour of the novel series and is not as broad as it could be in the script department. The cast give indications that they would prefer a more physical comedy. The portrait gag, for instance, is almost Marxian in its absurdity, but also leads to no payoff gag. The Hitler guy is a punchline to the nasty gang, and yet in itself is an undeveloped gag, whose payoff is Mrs. Bot's guy, which is just another undeveloped gag. It is as if the scriptwriter and director didn't really understand the theory of film comedy. We get payoff scene after payoff scene without any rigorously thought out series of events leading to the payoff. It is assumed chaos will be sufficient for the child audience. Despite this caveat, I must admit, I enjoyed going down into the bomb shelter to bring up this ray of hope, albeit I just grabbed the first film I could find on my way to the Brandy Reserves. Author Rich Mulcrompton was born on November the 15th, 1899 in Bury, England, and she died in 1969. Rich Mull was the daughter of the Reverend Edward Lamburn. She won a scholarship to the University of London and graduated in 1914 with an arts degree. Richmond used this to become a teacher at her old school in Derbyshire. In 1923, she contracted polio, which paralysed her right leg. This never stopped her campaigning for suffrage. In 1926, she moved to Bromley High School. This was the moment she began to write in earnest. Her writing career is what you want to hear about. Richmond began in 1919 with a tale about Tommy, William's predecessor. Rice Pudding Mould... 1919, first featured the character of William. Richmond had a, shall we say, complex relationship with William. To her, he was a satiric character who commented on adult activity in works intended for adults. This did not stop her appreciating the income she derived from William. 12 million copies of the stories sold over his run in the UK alone. Then we have films, TV series, stage plays, radio adaptations, all evolved from her work. The cash just kept rolling in. Richmond even tried to distinguish William from her other child fiction by publishing the Jimmy series, starting in 1949, aimed at boys, and Enter Patricia, 1927, aimed at girls. Neither were successful at carving off the child audience from the adventures of William. Director Graham Cutts was born in 1884, sometime, in Brighton, England, and he died in 1958. Graham's first job was as a marine engineer. He began his movie career as an exhibitor in 1909. Being of a controlling mind, he soon felt he should take control of production as well and became a director in 1922. 
He co-founded Gainsborough Film and, it is said, the studio was constructed on the success of his work. But let's not forget the little people, the people whose talent he recognised, people like Basil Dean, Alfred Hitchcock, Gracie Fields, Ivan Avallo, Noel Coward, Victor Seville, Herbert Wilcox, Michael Balkan and Adrian Brunel. Let's not forget them, because they never forgot or forgave Graham. Graham struggled with the coming of sound. The people he had ill-treated in the 20s were not inclined to aid him in the 30s. The result was a quick demotion into making quota quickies. It is arguable if this is a demotion. Most movie talent of this period in the UK were reduced to quota quickies just to make ends meet, as Hollywood sucked the life out of the local movie industry. Scriptwriter Doreen Montgomery was born on April the 12th, 1913, in Glasgow, Scotland, and she died in 1992. Doreen attended the University of Edinburgh and attained an arts degree. She then submitted scripts to the Associated British Picture Corporation. Her early fame comes from her work with Gainsborough Pictures in the 40s. She is best loved today for her work on the Avengers TV series, 1961-69, where she worked once again with DOP Walter J. Harvey. Actor Richard Lupino was born on October 29, 1929, in Los Angeles, California, USA, and he died in 2005. Richard was born into the Lupino Theatrical Company and was a cousin of Buster Keaton and Ida Lupino. An auspicious start, you might say. Although a child actor, he did, later, attend and graduate from RADA in London and served as a medic during the Korean War. Richard is more noted for his stage work than his film or TV appearances. Actor Roddy McDowell was born on September the 17th, 1928, in London, England, and he died in 1998. By 1940, Roddy had carved out a credible career as a child actor, starting in 1938, and having appeared in ten films before he started work on Just William in 1940. 1940 is the year his family moved to the USA, don't mention the war, and Roddy became a naturalized citizen in 1949. His second Hollywood film, How Green Was My Valley, 1941, made him a star and a lifelong friend of Maureen O'Hara. In 1943, he made another lifelong friend in Elizabeth Taylor when they worked together on Lassie Come Home. He then starred in, and kick-started, sorry, I was spurred on to make that pun, the Flicker series. Roddy later recalled, I really liked Lassie, but that horse, Flicker, was a nasty animal with a terrible disposition. The years as a child actor were coming to a close. He later said, I can't say I was unhappy as a child actor, but I was always lied to about myself and about the world. You see, the teenage Roddy had a problem. He realised he was gay. That was his problem. He also realised he had a problem with producers and directors. By the time I got to be 17 or 18, he recalled, Hollywood was still thinking of me in terms of what I had delivered at the age of 11. So I went to New York and started to study. In essence, he worked on the stage. Being cast in the Orson Welles production of Macbeth on stage led him to being cast in Orson's film version of 1948. 
While the film offers continued, albeit sporadically, Roddy spent the 50s honing his craft on the Broadway stage and in TV productions. By 1960, he was ready to return to Hollywood, and did so in the camp classic Cleopatra, 1963. He had appeared in The Subterraneans and Midnight Lace, both 1960, but no one had noticed him in them. The work now kept rolling his way until Planet of the Apes, 1968, gave him a new level of fame, even though his face is never seen on screen. His non-apes work in the 70s is mostly forgettable, although I add the memorable work is memorable. I would recommend his directorial debut in The Ballad of Tamlin, 1970, and as an actor, The Legend of Hell House, 1973. In the 80s, Roddy revitalized his career again through the Fright Night series. Apart from this high point, his career slipped into cheesy productions where he showed very poor taste in his selection of roles. He explained this with the Bella Lugosi excuse, saying, I don't like it when I'm not working, and I've never worked as much as I want to. The decline in quality continued through the 90s. Although Just William did all right at the box office, it wasn't thought safe to do a sequel until 1947's Just William's Luck, also known as Just William II, 1947. Director and script, Val Guest. Director of photography, Bert Mason. Editor, Anne Barker. And music, Robert Farnan. Actors, William Graham, Gary Marsh, Jane Welsh, Brian Wesk, Brian Roper, Joan Hickson, A. E. Matthews, Patricia Cutts, Michael Medwin, Stanley Baker, Ivan Hyde, and Muriel Ackard. The film opens upon the window repairman arriving at the Brown domicile to repair William's latest outrage. We then track through the Brown family as they discover William's latest round of mischief. Brother Robert finds the shaving cream has been replaced with boot polish. Sister Ethel finds her lipstick is missing. Father tries to shine his shoes with shaving cream and maid, Emily, discovers problems with the fridge. William, all this time blissfully unaware, has stolen the bread knife so it can be the sword Excalibur stuck in a loaf of bread. That'll teach it to just lie around. Violet Elizabeth interrupts this game but it is Ginger, on the bike passed on to him by his big brother, that garners William's interest. Ginger's brother is getting married and so doesn't need the bike anymore. The pathway to possession of a bike is clear before William's eyes. He is not Smiley, 1956, who works to raise the money. No, he is the upper-class William Brown, who would never soil his hands with manual labour. This idea of material possessiveness is put aside momentarily to form the Knights of the Square Table and go forth to right the wrongs of the village. The first wrong is the sneak Hubert Lane, whom the boys chase after they catch him spying on them. Hubert gets his revenge by trying to turn all the adults against William's gang. This is done as a silent montage. William can now return to his central dilemma, how to get Robert married within the week so he can inherit Robert's bike. Inheritance is the way the wealthy accumulate assets. As a famous actress is 
resting in the village, William gives her flowers on Robert's behalf. This is also done as a silent montage. Father, hearing about this, pays a visit to the young lady, Gabriel Gay, terrified at the chaos William may have caused. The village gossips bring word to Mrs. Brown that her husband has been calling on an actress. Mrs. Brown also makes a call to break things up. The knights of the square table have developed a sworn enmity to the man with the rolls and his aggressive driving style. He has bought the manor house and has made it very clear he doesn't like children. The children decide to force him to move. They encounter a tramp who promises to teach them how to haunt a house. The knight of the haunt is also the knight the man with the rolls is planning to move all the stolen furs his gang have accumulated. The rest of the film is virtually silent. First, the boys haunt the house with various booby traps. Then the criminal gang arrive, forcing the boys to hide, staring us in the direction of farce. This leads to a comic chase sequence. William manages to phone the police during the confusion. The boys are caught and stuffed into a van. Unconvincingly, this is a baker's van with sacks of flour along with the furs and boys. The boys used the flour to lay a trail for the police to follow. The thieves are caught, and on July the 2nd, according to the police calendar, William gets a bike as a reward, along with two shillings, and a clip around the ear from his father if he's lucky for sneaking out after midnight. Director Val Guest was born on December the 11th, 1911, in London, England, and he died in 2006. Val left school at 16 and worked for a bookkeeper. Exciting times! He was soon acting on the London stage, and then, in early sound films, he even started writing. This is why, in 1934, we catch up with him as a London correspondent for The Hollywood Reporter. An interview with Marcel Varnell led to a scriptwriting job offer from Gainsborough Studios. This is actually an amusing incident. Varnell was so angry at the published interview, he called Val out to see if he could do any better. Val responded with a script, thus beginning a profitable partnership, which in order to be preserved meant Gainsborough needed Val under contract. Through the 30s and 40s, Val was noted for his comedy scripts, in the 40s, he began directing them. Significantly, that is not what he's associated with today. In 1954, he began working with Hammer Films and directed some of the best British science fiction and horror films of that era. From the 60s onward, his output is a mixed bag, exemplified by his work on Casino Royale, 1967. Val was the last director called in to try and fix this troubled production. He was ordered to shoot linking material to make the existing footage seem comprehensible. Great job in that case, aided by the surrealism of the satire. Actor Brian Roper was born on August the 19th, 1929, in Doncaster, England, and he died in 1994. Just William's Luck, 1947, was Brian's first professional job. He then made his stage debut in J.M. Barry's last play, The Boy David, 1947. In 1948, he left England for good to take, 
to take on the role of Dickon in The Secret Garden in the USA. He was 19 when filming began. The studio said he was 14. Brian's acting career lasted 24 years, and then he went into the real estate business, where he was very successful. Val Guest was not one to let a hot property languish, so in 1948 he released William Comes to Town, also known as William at the Circus, 1948. Director and script, Val Guest. Director of photography, Bert Mason. Editor, Carmen Balieff. Music, Robert Farnan. Actors, William Graham, Gary Marsh, Jane Welsh, Hugh Cross, Kathleen Stewart, Muriel Ackard, Brian Wesk, Brian Roper, A.E. Matthews, Michael Medwin, John Pertwee, and Peter Butterworth. The William series takes a spin into our gang territory as William decides to unionise the children of England to demand fewer school days and larger pocket money. The satire is clearly a swing at the union movement in England, but also the government caving into its demands, leaving outside the picture the demands of capital, which are hardly ever aired in the public arena because the government gives in immediately, and even anticipates demands, something it never does for workers. The workers are seen as demanding because they are sidelined by the political system. William, being a middle-class kid in this film, is motivated by self-interest. He wants to go to the circus, but his stunts keep landing him in trouble. He and his gang decide to petition Parliament about the iniquity of it all. First, however, they need the money to go to London to present their petition, which speaks volumes about the speed of the UK mail service. The group fail to meet the Prime Minister, but do meet a sympathetic Minister for Economic Affairs, Sir Henry. William well-versed in his father's lectures on economics, tries to explain how Mr. Brown would solve all the country's woes. Mr. Brown, in the subplot, is trying to find a way to train William without coming across as an ogre himself. This mostly involves him in swallowing his rage. William and the minister meet with reporters. William is happy to repeat tales of his father's economic genius. Apoplexy is how his father feels upon reading the next morning's newspaper, not least because he never knew William had gone down to London by himself. Reporters arrive at the Brown domicile. His brother and sister are happy to give interviews. An avalanche of fan mail arrives, including the delivery of the chimpanzee William is trying to keep secret from his family, with the end result that William is absolutely banned from going to the circus. William remembers his minister friend and goes to him to protest yet again the injustice of parental authority, with no subplot about where the money for the trip has come from this time. The minister is about to go to the Olympia, which turns out to be the circus. William saves Sir Henry's spectacles on the roller coaster ride, and all is forgiven, with the rest of the running time padded out with circus footage. The silent montages continue in this entry. Despite the short running time, the character of William has been allowed to blossom, with what could be cloying earnest mannerisms leavened by some subtle comic timing. The next episode finds us bucolically wallowing in 1894. Drain the swamp, I say. 
If you're interested in more films in the interim, I can point you towards the Movie Chronicles ebook series. If you would like to support this podcast, become a Patreon supporter. Until next episode, remember, there is no being, only becoming.